Hi, everybody. This is Zach, and welcome to the Better Way podcast. I am the co-founder and managing principal of RNG Insights Lab. I'm also the co-host of this podcast, along with my incredible co-host, Wei. Wei, welcome. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. We have a very exciting session ahead of us. The topic for today is telling stories. And Wei, who are we joined by today? Ah. I'm so excited. She is, first of all, the best colleague ever, Megan Zweibel. She also interviewed me before when she was a journalist more than once. And she had always struck me as one of the journalists that I really enjoyed having a conversation because she was so inquisitive. Um, so when I learned that she and I in, were going to be colleagues, in fact, we started on the same day uh, in the lab, I was ecstatic. So Megan, welcome. Thank Welcome, you so Megan. much. I'm the so excited to be here. The tables have turned. I know. Have the interviewer lost. is the interviewee. It is so true. So true. And so, Megan, who are you? Oh, man. I don't think I can do that after lunch. That's not, that's not a question I can handle at this time of day. Who am I? <laughs> I'm the Director of Operations and Delivery at the RNG Insights Lab. I mean, how deep do you want me to go, Zach? Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your unique background as both a lawyer and a writer. Yeah, I mean, I am both of those things. Uh, I went to law school, did the normal associate track thing, was an associate at a New York law firm uh, for eight and a half years, a really long time. I actually had a fairly interesting career as an associate because I worked at a law firm that specialized in litigation with pretty much no specialties within that. And so uh, my practice was a little all over the place, but it meant I worked on some really fun and interesting things. And I was on a second in Germany and worked in-house at a bank. Um, but the most fun case I got to work on was a Nazi looted art case, which not everyone gets Whoa. to do. All sorts of areas I got to explore all, all over the place uh, as an associate. And then from there, after sort of spending that time in the German bank and seeing a different way of life, I decided I needed a change. And everyone says the way you find jobs is through networks. And that seems like really daunting. And then it happened. And you're like, oh, this is this is how this works. And I was talking to my friend who is actually a friend from high school who also went to law school with me. She's like, oh, my friend's looking for someone. She writes. She, she works for a publication. I was like, okay. And I interviewed with her friend, uh, and who is Nicole Deschino, and she worked for a publication called The Anti-Corruption Report. And Nicole and I hit it off instantly. And Nicole sort of looked at me and was like, I know this is not what you're like, exactly what you're looking for. I know this is a little weird, but you're going to really like it. And I know you're going to be like, am I a good writer? Am I going to be able to do this? And like, you're going to be great. And I took sort of this leap of faith, had that job for quite a number of years. And it was incredible. I learned so much. I didn't know what the FCPA was when I first took that job. I learned everything uh, sort of academically um, and on the ground and from talking to experts like Wei and all sorts of other people. Zach, I interviewed Zach too in, my, in that job as well. So I was at the Anti-Corruption Report for seven and a half years. And then I came here and now I work at the lab and help keep make the trains run on time as the director of operations and help build out the efficient delivery program. And also I get to do some really cool creative compliance consulting work, which is kind of my favorite, which I love a lot. So the topic for today is telling stories. So I want to start by talking about your time as a lawyer, that eight and a half years as a lawyer before you went to the anti-corruption report. How did you feel like you 
told stories as a lawyer? Well, like I said, I was a litigator, right? Litigating, a lot of people think that means like going to court. No, that never happened. <laughs> what litigating actually is, is just writing briefs and briefs are just telling a story and making an argument. And um, I had the good fortune of working with and being mentored by some incredible writers while I was there and um, learned so much about how to organize information and convey that information in a compelling way. I still use one of the notes I got there was talking about how um, when you're writing a brief is that uh, your table of contents should be enough to win you the case that the judge should be able to be lazy and only read the table of contents and know exactly what your argument is and know that you're right. Outlining things into a really organized um, structure and having compelling headlines that tell your story even at that high level is what's really gonna get you there. And so, um, so much of that practice was storytelling. So much of it was about getting so familiar with the facts and then synthesizing them and then putting that into a story and then being able to present that story in, in briefs that went to the third circuit, went to the Supreme Court. I didn't write the Supreme Court brief. I feel like I always have to put that out as like a, there was Supreme Court counsel, but I was the master of the facts on that, right? And so even behind the scenes, I was sort of telling the story of like, no, no, this is the part you wanna tell. These are the documents that are gonna get us there. Um, and so there's so much storytelling involved in litigation if you're doing it well or right. Yeah, this is so interesting because I, I did start my career as a in-court litigators. No matter how complicated the case was, you need to make 12 people who are sitting in the jury box understand your theory and buy into your theory. And one of the ways that that uh, I started was being made to you know sit with a bunch of other law clerks uh, and summarize trial transcripts in getting ready for appeal, right? So I remember being very angry um, at that time, thinking, boy, I should you know, surely be doing more interesting things than sitting in a dark room and summarizing trial transcripts. I wish the supervisor had told us that this is one of the best trainings you can get. You, you did the, the litigator thing, and then you did your journalist thing. How do you compare sort of your typical lawyer way of narrating with what journalists do, what can they learn from each other? Well, I think the the best lawyers, or at least the best brief writers, um, write like journalists. Uh, that mm -hmm. might be a small subsection of it's lawyers. Very, very small. Right, and like very. I said, I had the luck to work with a few of them, and it was sort of incredible to read, and I would get mad. I'd read their stuff, and then I'd read someone else's stuff. I'm like, why is everyone else terrible? <laughs> Right. Um, but I, I think that lawyers get bogged down in the sense of like what legal writing is supposed to sound like when you're talking about a civil commercial practice, like your audience is a judge or a clerk more accurately. Right. right. Um, and they are human beings and they watch television. They read the newspaper. They read all sorts of other things that, you know, are probably a lot more enjoyable to them than a really poorly worded brief and that if you could stick out as just a good piece of writing they're going to enjoy it more and even if, if they just enjoy it they're going to be more amenable to your case just from the simple act of enjoying it i think if you make it entertaining if you make it clear if you make it concise if you get to the point that's gonna help you win for sure oftentimes people forget that they're not subject matter experts necessarily in totally. whatever 
topic, right? So somebody could have become a judge after a career of being a prosecutor, public defender, and, you know, never touched an antitrust case in their lives. And suddenly now they're on the bench and you have to explain that to them. So even when you're talking to what you think is a truly a legal expert, they're not necessarily subject matter experts in what you're trying to present. And I, I do think lawyers very often forget that. Totally. And it's one of my biggest, like, um, sort of foundational principles when I when I worked at the anti-corruption report too is I'm very big on scaffolding starting at the baby steps and like yes even when you are talking to experts right like sure a handful of your audience might be a little bored by it but I'm gonna guess generally speaking people understand a lot less than they think they do right and so so you start off with the scaffolding the first principles always and then build from there and i think that's so true for legal writing as well i remember sandra day o'connor talking about how you know someone asked her like what she wished she had known or something she's like i really wish i had a lot more technical understanding of of like ip and it was injured this is a supreme court judge talking about how she did not understand the things that people were bringing to her and it means that like yes it would have been helpful if she maybe had an engineering degree but it also means that they weren't doing a good job of making their case sandra day o'connor should come out of the end and feel like a total expert on whatever you, you put it in front of her if you're doing it right. But that means you have to start with the baby steps. You have to start with engineering 101 and then move on and move on and move on. You have to lay that groundwork uh, to make your writing effective. One of the things that you just said that just like hits for me so hard is the most basic concept or proposition, which is that the people who are reading these things are human beings. And like, if we deconstruct that thought, there has never been a piece of writing written in all of human history that was written for someone other than a human being. It's true. <laughs> and yet, and yet um, a lot of the stuff that I've read throughout my life and career, um, and I'm sure that you've read throughout your life and career, and a lot of the stuff that kind of dominates in the legal profession is not always seemingly written like there is a real human being on the other end, on the receiving end of that. It just hits with me really hard. Well, and it's also, it's not even just that it's a human being. And I think this is true for legal writing, but I think it actually applies in terms of compliance training and that kind of thing is that people have an archetype in their mind, a character in their mind about who they think they're like a judge is. And they think of like an old timey man from the 19th century and like in a wig and a robe and he does nothing but read like old timey cases. And therefore you have to have a a lot of therefores and, you know, with regards to and like that's what they want to hear and like the judge you're talking to almost certainly like has children or grandchildren who watch a lot of paw patrol they probably watch a lot of reality tv like even if they don't watch that they read the same newspapers that you read definitely don't talk like that like there's these archetypes and i think that plays into compliance and compliance training as well is like there's this idea that like you're talking to a worker right they are they are really involved in the company and that that's their persona you're talking to the persona instead of the person and i and think that's the, a mistake in the timeline you're a journalist at the anti-corruption report um what was that what was that experience like how what was that transition like it was the loveliest transition 
ever actually um i was so fortunate to be working with nicole and we were such a good team and she was such a good boss and she made it just such a lovely transition logistically and then um i'm sure i've told this story everywhere before but like i went to my first compliance conference and looked around and i'm like oh this is where all the nice lawyers are. And it was this complete revelation to be working in this space with people who actively care about ethics, that actively care about doing the right thing, who talk about culture and take it seriously. And oh my God, I'm not a weirdo. This is amazing. How was the storytelling that you were doing at the anti-corruption report as a journalist different from what you were doing as a litigator? I got to choose what to write about. <laughs> that was, it was driven by my curiosity and not by uh, what a client needed or what a client had done, um, <laughs> what mistakes had been made. And instead could be being, I just would sit and say, what's interesting? What's going on? And I would come up with a topic that I wanted to know more about. And I'd figure out some people who could tell me more about it and I'd have great conversations with them. And so it was really uh, curiosity driven, which um, was a really lovely change. And I think it changed the whole tenor of the writing too, is because then I got to control the whole thing from start to finish and um, have my own voice. So Megan, I, I'm very curious. I, I've always been very uh, puzzled by the compliance world's obsession with anti-corruption. I'm curious as to your thoughts as to why that there is such obsession with this particular type of compliance. I think it comes from two sides, like two almost opposite sides, is that I think one, there's sort of the practical side of that in compliance-related fields, um, anti-corruption was one of the first where there was this very targeted enforcement environment, right? Companies were getting bonked big for corruption issues, right? And so that nothing focuses the mind, like- For foreign corruption issues. For, for, for foreign not, corruption, not, yes. Not anything domestic. Not anything <laughs> domestic. So, domestic corruption. corruption doesn't seem to get any coverage. No, to which is a whole other kettle of fascinating fish, I think. For the FCPA unit at the DOJ and also at the SEC, they work in coordination with each other and they were very aggressive over the past decade or so. And like I said, nothing focuses your mind, like the chance that you might actually have the DOJ and SEC knocking at your door. And so I think there's that. There's also the motivation that that drives from like top down is that executives who are not in the compliance space at all are seeing this and worrying about it. And then they're like, you guess what your job is now? Focus on this. So I think there's that. Um, then I think there's this completely opposite end of the spectrum element to it, which is that it is fun. It's actually really interesting stuff. The All of the fact patterns that underlie these cases are interesting. They're cool. They involve literal bags of cash and crazy code words and like insane plots and all this stuff they're fun to read about and i they have stories, stories behind them yeah. exactly in a way that i think other areas don't have there's often like an element to human misery around healthcare fraud and that kind of stuff whereas like there's something really juicy about a lot of these corruption cases and so when you put those things together when you get that you have 
executives minds focused on it and like there's the fear element of it and then you also have these like juicy fact patterns like it's delicious why wouldn't you want to pay a lot of attention to it this is so interesting so i'm gonna put a different spin on your your first reason historically the largest criminal fines they're really for environmental crimes vw and uh deepwater horizon and also for lots of financial crimes like mortgage fraud. Last time I looked at the top 10, there was not a single FCPA case in there. But I think anti-corruption or specifically foreign corruption is a story that is more easily understood by people and that people could relate to. So I think if I am just a medium-sized company with a couple of overseas operations, I can be made to feel like this is something I need to worry about. So, so in some ways, my spin on that, it's not, you know, I, I don't think the focus enforcement is unique at all. I think the focus in enforcement has been better told as a story. Well, than the others. And also like the, the concept of salience though, too, right. It's like mortgage fraud isn't related to a lot of companies. Right. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. um, any company that has an international footprint has like maybe some foreign corruption. Right. Risk, but, right? But, but the story has been told in such a way. I remember working with a client, um, you know, a couple of years ago that had no international operation, none. And they asked me to review their compliance programs. And I said, so, so tell me what you think your risk areas are. So they listed what should be their risk. And then they said, you know, what, what do you think about FCPA? I'm like, why? <laughs> I just like they want it to be because it sounds so fun. (laughs) You told us a little bit about how the storytelling that you did at the anti-corruption report was different from what you did as a litigator. But how if it all was the same? It's the same in terms of you're taking really complicated concepts and putting the information together in the right order and then the right pieces that so you can convey understanding. Like, that's the big thing. And I, it may be sort of silly, but on the, my LinkedIn profile now, like my, what is my title? Untangler of knots. But that's always what I felt like I was doing both um, as a litigator and certainly at the anti-corruption report is I'd sit with this tangled knot of information. Um, and my job was to pick it apart carefully. So I have in my notes, untangler of knots. <laughs> yes. Um, Because I felt like this was worthy of acknowledgement, not just because I love the story you just told about why you put that in your LinkedIn profile, but because it's such a representation of the way your mind works and how much value you bring to our work that most people put, you know, uh, director, uh, advisor, consultant, but Megan, you're like a poet in the way that you describe the work that you do by putting in your LinkedIn profile, Untangler of Knots. I just love that so much. So when when I saw that tagline, that Untangler of Knots, I immediately think about, that's how I would describe investigations. Mm. To me, that's what investigations is all about, is all these little messy facts and data that you're supposed to make sense of it. Yep. So... Tell us how you think that approach, that narrative approach, the storytelling approach can be used towards investigation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly the same. And there's a reason that uh, investigative journalists and detectives are the same kind of the same genre of movie, right? Like it's the same story, right? Um, Everything is a confusion. 
right? And then you have to put it into some sort of order. But I think it's the same process. And and being an investigator is essentially being a detective. You're like, what has happened here? What information do I have? And what's in front of me? So so let's talk about a skill set that that where I think a lot of lawyers doing investigation can learn from journalists. How how do you get information out of people Uh, so that you story it's so funny it's so much less hard than i think people think it is is and i think it might be different i come at it from the more the journalistic perspective i did not have like a robust investigation practice when i was an associate so i don't have that element of it but um at least from a journalist perspective people want to talk people want to share what they know they want to show themselves to be expert in things. And then, which might sound a little self-aggrandizing or selfish, but then the third thing that I've been perpetually surprised by is people want to help. People really want to help. And if you say, I don't understand, can you help me understand? Like, how, how did we get from X to Y? How does that happen? People want to help you. And um, I think there are things that maybe get in the way of that impulse. But if you let yourself give people the opportunity to help, they will almost always rise to that occasion. Storytelling sounds like this amazing thing. Like I, I get behind it, ways behind it. Obviously you're behind it. Um, is there space though for storytelling in the corporate setting? Tell us where. So much of corporate culture, business, strategy, everything is storytelling. I apologize if this gets too far afield, but uh, a corporation isn't a person. It has no identity in and of itself, right? Its identity is entirely a story that's told about it, right? It is just the stories we tell about the corporation. So there's room, tons of room. And in fact, I think a lot of it is missed opportunity is people don't realize that that's the case. The stories happen haphazardly, that it becomes something that happens to the corporation, right? That happens to the company. It's imposed on it by the outside. Whereas if it takes control of the narrative, which plenty of companies do, that's what PR firms are there for and advertising agencies are there for, um, they can have more control over how they're defined as an entity. But I think compliance is an area where they don't take control of that narrative. That narrative happens to them, right? It happens to them when the DOJ or the SEC or the SFO come knocking on their door and all of a sudden there is a narrative imposed on them about what their compliance culture is, what what they are as a company related to ethics and culture and that kind of thing. And instead, companies should be telling that story in the same way they're telling the brand story. It's I think it's it's just a missed opportunity not to. All right. Megan, before we get to know you a little bit better, <laughs> what are your key takeaways from our discussion today? I mean, I think it's about that the usefulness of narrative in terms of helping people convey complex ideas, right? Is when I talk about untangling knots, right? The way they become untangled is to put them in an order and the order is a narrative, right? And that's what makes it both compelling and clear. And so I think that would be the big takeaway there. All right, now we get to know you a little bit better. All right, so uh, the first few questions, you have options of which one you can answer. Uh, And so the first two questions to choose from are, if you could wake up tomorrow and have gained any quality or ability, what would it be? Or is there a quality about yourself that you're currently working to improve? And if so, what is it? The only image that comes to my mind, which is maybe juvenile, but is Hermione Granger and her time turner in Harry Potter. And I really Mm -hmm. wish I could just repeat hours and be able to do, first, this is our work. And now this 
hour is tidying and now this hour is getting dinner ready and now this hour is actually getting to rest. Um, but yeah, that would be my choice. We have that to look forward to, hopefully, at some Someday. point in our lifetime. Uh, the next two questions to choose from are, who is your favorite mentor or who do you wish you could be mentored by? Um, this is always so hard, but I, I think uh, I was thinking about my favorite mentor would be back at the law firm. Uh, there was a man named James Kane who was just such a generous mentor in terms of writing. He was just a totally brilliant brief writer and took the time to give me useful feedback, which was not always on hand and, and really think through things with me. And that was so useful. And then he served as a great mentor when he also left the law firm and went to live in a farm in France. And that was such a great living by example, a uh, bit of mentorship as well. Amazing. Is he still around? Oh yeah. He lives in France. <laughs> he still lives on the farm in France. Yeah. yeah I want to go visit. Uh, all right. So the next set of questions is, uh, what is the best place you have worked? Which I feel like it's really not fair for us to keep asking this question to people who work in the lab. I, yeah. Uh, or what is the best job paid or unpaid you have ever had? Oh, see, and I have like a list of funny unpaid jobs that I could go, but they weren't the best, but, uh, I worked at a zoo briefly. I was on a I was on a cable TV show for a little while. <laughs> but I oh. the best job I ever had or uh probably ever will have no offense guys was those first few years working with Nicole at the anti-corruption report when it was the two of us and we were just like in total mind meld we she, we she jokes I joke because that's the point that we just had one brain and we shared a brain between the two of us and we followed our curiosity and spent all of our time together and made the publication, I think, fantastic, but in the way we wanted it to be fantastic. And that will be very, very hard to beat though. Let's see. Let's see what the lab does. <laughs> Give me time. Give me time. Okay. There. Um, and just to be clear, you shared one very large brain. It wasn't like each. No, no. It was a really big brain. It was like a, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the next question, what's your favorite thing to do? I was thinking this is a hard one, but I think if I want to be truly honest about my favorite thing to do, it is to lie quietly and read a nice, really engaging fiction book. How often do you get to do that? I mean, I make the time. It's how I go to bed every night. So I get to do it. Yeah, I squeeze it in there. What's your favorite place? I think it would be Florence, uh, which is what mm. Way said too. So there's that. But then if I wanted to alternate answer, if, if I'm not stealing would be, I have made my bed very comfortable. It has beautiful linen sheets and fluffy pillows. And I, you give me a nice book and that would be my favorite place. It ties into the thing to do. Uh, what makes you proud? Um, I think the thing that makes me proudest at the moment is my parenting. I've uh, put a lot of thought and effort into what it means, what the responsibility is to raise a good human being. Uh, particularly, I have a small little white man who's growing up and how to raise him to be a uh, thoughtful, kind, hopefully at least aware of his privilege. <laughs> uh, it's a lot to ask. And I think I'm proud of how it's going so far. I'm only four and a half years in, though. We'll see <laughs> how it goes. <laughs> What email sign-off do you use most frequently? I probably use thanks exclamation point most frequently, but my alternate that I use like for more serious is I use warmly, which I think a lot of people hate, but I think the world could use a little bit more warmth in it, even in a business setting. So Amazing. What trend in your field is most overrated? I wrote about this a lot at the Anti-Corruption Report, and I think there's a lot of chatter, chatter about artificial intelligence and machine learning and compliance, and the world is not there yet. And so I think it's 
Um, not overrated in terms of its someday eventual potential, but it's overrated in terms of its usefulness right now. It's a whole podcast series right there. Yep. And finally, what word would you use to describe your day so far? Uh, my day's been a little frenetic. There's lots of different things like uh, all over the place. So frenetic is the word I'm going to use, but this has been a really lovely grounding experience. So I'll take that. Well, that is all the time we have. Megan, thank you so much. It's been really great digging in a little bit deeper with you, exploring the power of storytelling. Way I am sure we will have Megan back many times. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Megan. And thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.